today, uh, actually I think tomorrow exactly, but today is our seven-year anniversary as Damascus Road Church, and the day we started public services um, at a school down in Marysville, and the one-year anniversary for Snohomish will be in January, but it's been seven years, and in that time, as a seven-year-old, we've had a couple kids, uh, Communion Church, and then Snohomish, and it's been a joy, and we celebrated uh, in Marysville this morning by honestly just recognizing Chris, Pastor Chris uh, Rich and his family, who have been an um, incredible um, servant to this church from the very beginning, arrived the second week and has been faithfully serving since then, uh, sacrificing, and um, we just wanted to honor him and, and, and really just thank him for, for all he's given because we are of little means and aren't able to thank as much as we'd like. And so uh, if you happen to see him, I think he'll show up. He may not this morning, but if he does, uh, just everyone tackle him and love on him and uh, then let him up afterwards. So we're in Malachi chapter 3, and uh, we're going to read in verse 16. If you're new to our church, we go straight through books of the Bible, and uh, we don't pick special sermons for baby dedication days, so this will be interesting. Um, it is going to be some hard words from Malachi, which is a, what he calls a heavy burden from the Lord. So we're in Malachi 3, verse 16, and we will finish Malachi next week, almost get to a, the end today. We'll go into chapter 4 a little bit. So if you read with me out of God's Word, here's what it says. Malachi 3:16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasure possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. It is hard-hitting, but it is Yours. And so I pray that You'll move me out of the way. Holy Spirit, You will speak the words that we need to hear, whether those be words of comfort or words of conviction. But Father, fill these words with Your power. Do not let them be empty, but let them return, Father, with the effect that You desire. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So, Malachi has been an interesting book. Last week we ended with uh, God actually saying kind of the last statement, recounting the what he called hard or harsh words from the Israelites, spoken against him. He's telling them and reminding them of what they've said. And Jesus taught in several places that what comes out of the mouth is what reveals the heart. And so if we take the words of what we've heard the Israelites saying and say this is revealing something about their heart or what's in their heart, 
we would say that the majority, if it represents the majority of the Israelites at Malachi's time, are unfaithful, and the majority do not fear God. God Himself said that in the very beginning, that they neither loved Him nor feared Him. And because they do not fear God, they proclaim something very specific, that it is vain to serve God. They say it is meaningless. There is no profit in obedience. There is no fruit in being faithful. It just doesn't matter. And so, the curious thing, or perhaps disturbing thing, is they're still going through the motions of what we'll call religion in a negative sense. They're still going through the motions of worship, but we know, because of what we know of their hearts, that their worship is not an act of devotion, it's an act of duty. And they are no longer enjoying worship, they are no longer enjoying giving to the Lord or sacrificing to the Lord, because they no longer enjoy the Lord. And they don't enjoy God because, in their estimation, God hasn't given them the things they want to enjoy. So, all this is happening as they look around at the evil world, if you will, the world that is pagan in their eyes, and they are experiencing prosperity, and they are experiencing peace, and in the chosen people, in what they think is an obedient life, they're experiencing poverty and pain. And so, this has devastated their faith and become, or caused them to become fairly apathetic, if not antagonistic, toward God. And I've wondered why this is. Like, how does this happen to people? When do they come apathetic like this? What's the process? And I think it begins with attention. And by that I mean their beliefs about God and His promises are in tension between their experience of God and the experience of His promises. And what I mean is, when your experience of God doesn't match your expectations of God, know that the problem isn't with your experience. Your expectations of God most likely are off. When expectations, whatever they are, of prosperity, and prosperity can mean many things, but when they're not met, when they're not achieved, we begin to accuse God of things. And this is where the Israelites have gone. They've said, up to this point, lots of things. I think six or seven They've declared something about God because of what God has done or not done. They've said, God is not loving. We have concluded that God is not the owner of my stuff and I don't owe Him anything. God is not worthy of our best. God is not just. God is not even present. And for Him to call me to return is ridiculous because I never went anywhere. He's the one that needs to come back to me. And they get to this place where I, I think they truly believe that I cannot expect God to consistently give me what I want. Therefore, I should not and can't be expected to give Him or do what He wants. Expectations dictating a lot of things and leads us to accusations against God. The thing about it is God, He doesn't ever promise not to change what He does. What what he says is that he promises never to change who he is. 
And we'll always find ourselves in this place starting to accuse God if we expect Him to be or become someone different than who He declares Himself to be. And what I think God is trying to do to Israel, and this isn't just in Malachi, this is in all the Old Testament. And what He's trying to do for us, because guess what? We are just as prosperity-driven as the next guy. Even if we aren't the prosperity church with the prosperity gospel, we fall into this very easily. And what God is trying to show Israel is that the problem they have is internal, not external. The problem they have is at a heart level. Their issue of unbelief comes from something with, somewhere within. And that means that more or less of something external, right? More prosperity, more money, which, if we're honest, most of the, quote, problems that we have in our life, we believe will be resolved by more something. Usually more money. Perhaps more love from our spouse. Or more obedience from our children. Or less of something. Less irritation here. Less problems here. If I just have more or less of of these external things... All would be well. And God is trying to say, no. How do we know that? Look at Israel's story in the Old Testament. There was not a people that prospered more under God than Israel. He gave them immeasurable levels of prosperity. He redeemed them from slavery. As they're coming out of slavery, the Israelites are throwing their gold at them like, please leave and take everything. They plundered them. When they're in the wilderness, they're being fed by them. Water's squirting out of rocks and food is falling out of the sky. They are taken into the promised land, and as they're battling and fighting swords, hailstones are killing the people before they even swing. Walls of cities are falling down. More recently for them, they had been taken into exile and God had brought them back in the most miraculous of ways. They have been blessed. And guess what? They haven't changed. They haven't changed. And then you look at Israel and you see, you know what? No other people actually experienced God's cursing like they did as well. Like they had some pretty unbearable things. They were spanked pretty hard. They were put into exile by God. People were, the Assyrians and the Persians, those were raised up by God to spank His own people. To punish. And guess what? After all that punishment, they didn't change. Because the problem isn't external. It's not about blessings. It's not about cursings. It's not about reward and punishment. It's about a broken heart. Neither great prosperity nor great punishment changed their hearts. And so God ends a word to Malachi declaring really something He's already said multiple times, that a day is coming when He is going to set all things right in the hearts of His people and in the world. And the passage is pretty disturbing. It's a disturbing picture for some. It's going to be, I think, Also, because it's still disturbing, an affirming picture for others. Something that brings some assurance. He says this day that is coming 
is going to be many things. It's going to be a day of remembrance. God's going to remember some things. Through the beginning of time, remember some things. God is going to be, or that day is going to be a day of distinction. It's going to be a day of great reward. It's going to be a day of great punishment. It will be a day, he says, of burning. And it will be a day of healing. It will be the day when God finally separates His people from among all people. And when I say that, it's not a separation of just His covenant people who were marked by circumcision of the flesh against all the Gentiles. Romans 2, Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of a heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, even, and we've seen this in Malachi, those who are Israel are not truly faithful. This day that is coming will be a day of separation for those whom God knows are faithful in heart among all the unfaithful even among those who appear faithful. Now, after listening to these harsh words of the Israelites who have been making accusations against God over and over again, this is the one and only time here in Malachi where we hear the words of the faithful, a small faithful remnant that is amongst all this unfaithfulness in Israel those who are described as truly fearing God. And what he says is then, after hearing all this stuff, all these how questions, how have we offended you? How have we despised you? He says, then those who feared the Lord spoke. And they spoke with one another. He says, the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So, Malachi has been this picture of God revealing sin. That's what he's done. And when God reveals our sin, there are only two responses that actually occur. Whether that revelation comes from a person, from reading the Word of God, from a pastor, from a friend, wherever that comes from, there are typically only two responses. One is prideful defense. And that's what you've seen the Israelites do. What are you talking about? How have we despised your name? How have we done this? That's been the majority of Malachi. The other is humble fear. And that's what you see here. There are really only two kinds of people in the world. God says those who fear God and those who do not fear Him. There is no third category of indifference. That's in the do not fear world. That's the only kinds of people there are. And when Malachi spoke, as I said, there were many who argued with God and asked all kinds of how questions. And apparently, because this is the only time he says the opposite, he had no real regard for their questions. He responded to them, but he really didn't pay much attention to them because They were just complaints. In fact, at one point he said, I'm so tired of hearing you complain. 
I'm tired of your accusations. Their complaints and their questions were really not as a result of, I really want to understand God, like devoted to to knowing you. They were just disdain. But here he says, he paid careful attention and he heard the words of those who feared him. And we're not told what words they are. We're not told what they said. But we know they said something. And we know that it's in contrast to what we've heard so far from those who do not fear Him. Those who fear God said some words and perhaps they were the opposite of what the unfaithful had said. Perhaps they were, God is loving. God is worthy of our best. God is just. God is my owner and master. God does own my life and I owe Him mine. God will return when we return. It is good to serve the Lord and it is meaningless to do anything else. My guess is that's what the words probably were. And the other thing it says is those who fear the Lord They didn't just cry out and declare them. They actually spoke together. They spoke to one another. And we see this really important connection between truth and community. This isn't some individual coming to a conclusion on their own and then just rejoicing in their salvation. This is an individual who knows they're part of a larger group, even if it's a small group in this sense. There's all kinds of communities to be part of, and they share all kinds of truth. But involvement in the wrong community, or isolation from what God says is the right community, will invariably lead to wrong views and isolation from God. So we need more than just a community. And there's lots of communities to be a part of, of, and not all of them are sinful, but many of them are, especially when they go to a place to provide you things that God's community is the only place it's supposed to be found. And what we see is that this little community is, at best description, a God-fearing community. It's great to have communities that foster relationships with men. I think those are valuable to our lives. We're all part of different ones. But there's only one real community, the church, that is considered a God-fearing community in this sense. And we need God-fearing community to protect our relationship with God. In true God-fearing community, the people speak the truth of God to one another. And they speak the truth about God to one another. What was the problem in the Garden of Eden? The temptation began with, did God really say? What should Adam have done? Heck yes, that's what he said. And declare the truth to God. Wash his wife in the word of God. This was the word. That's protective. What began with a, well, maybe God didn't really say that, ended with, God's a liar. That's where it leads. And so we need God-fearing community to speak truth about God to one another and the truth of God to one another. That is what protects our relationship with God. So God's listening to their words as they commune together and share the truth about God. God is loving. I know this is difficult. 
Look at that evil out there. No, God is just. I don't know if I should be sacrificing to God. I mean, I just don't know if it's going to fruit the fruit. It will. You be faithful. You let God figure out the fruit for you. We need that. So God's listening to this, and what does He say? He writes down a book of remembrance. Now, in the Middle East, it was not uncommon for a king to record and write books like this of just important events and kind of his story of what happened. And we also have in the Old Testament, very often in the Psalms and elsewhere, references to a record of the righteous, even a book of life. In context, this book seems to be a little bit different, but what it seems to be is a book written by God to remember the spoken words of the people. And I believe that it includes all the words of both the fearful and the fearless, in the negative sense. All the words that have been spoken that are true and false. All the words that are maybe received as soft or, as God said, were hard. These words, I think the best description for them are confessional words. Confessional words. Declaration of belief from those who are speaking them. This is not like Santa Claus keeping track of the naughty and nice words that come out of your mouth. These are not the flippant comments that we regret later. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, I can't believe you did, but I'll remember it. That's not what I'm talking about. What this is, is a record of a man's true heart confession. A confession that will either justify their salvation or justify their condemnation. A record of not, oops, I said this, but what I truly believe regardless of what you see or even hear. True confession. Jesus said this in Matthew, and I am looking forward to going through Matthew, which we would do verse by verse, because I want to hopefully create a clear picture of Jesus. And he said some hard things. He said in Matthew chapter 12, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, which is the day we're talking about, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. God hears all. God knows all, and God never forgets all. Our confessions matter. And the most important confession, the most important confession about God is who we declare Jesus to be. Romans 10 says it this way, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
our confessions, particularly about Jesus, matter eternally. In the words of this book, it says, are written, in this translation it says, of, in others, like the NASB translation, it says, for. I believe it includes all the confessions of everyone, and it is written for those who fear Him, because guess what? It is only going to benefit those who fear Him. They look forward to this being recorded and remembered. But the day of His coming, He says, will be a day of distinction. And know that as I preach this, I am held accountable for every word that I speak. I knew that this was going to be a day of baby dedications and there will be families here. And I, I am glad and yet sober to the reality of some of the hard truths that are going to come here. And my prayer is that it's spoken accurately. But on the last day, the Word says that God is going to open that book and distinguish between people. And it says in verse 17, They speaking of those who fear Him, shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my treasure possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And once more he shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. On the final day, those who truly fear God will be revealed. And God will make known His covenant people, His treasure possession, His children, whom He loves and who love Him as Father and fear Him as Lord. And just as there was a distinction in Malachi's day, if you remember Malachi chapter 1, right? The first statement God makes is, I have loved you. And they said, how have you loved us? And He says, look at Edom. I have loved Jacob and I have hated Esau. There will be a people, just as there was, that God chooses to love and those God chooses to hate or not love, if that makes it feel different. We don't like that word. It's difficult. But God uses it. And our flesh compels us and, and tries to convince us that this distinction that God is making is about what we do and when we do it. When Scripture clearly says it's all about what our holy God chooses to do and when He chooses to do it. This is less about us and more about Him. God declares, though, that one of the distinguishing characteristics between the righteous and the wicked is that the righteous serve God and the wicked don't serve God. Now, it's easy for us to go in this place of, alright, well, I'm just going to serve God. Give me my list, and I have checked that off, so I'm in. Fire insurance card, boom. But it's very clear in the context of Malachi, right, that it can't just be about religious service. The majority of people at this point in Israel look religious, sound religious, have all the appearance of faithfulness. But God has said, we've read it, they are unfaithful, they are disobedient, your sacrifices are despicable, you are bringing shame upon my name, you are despising my sanctuary and my altar. 
He's told them very clearly, I am not pleased with you. You are not obedient, and yet you look religious. Matthew 7 holds one of the most sobering passages in the Bible. Jesus speaking. Yes, meek and mild Jesus, whom we think only speaks words of love. He does, and some of that love really hurts. Matthew 7 says, as Jesus is telling, preaching really, about the kingdom and about the last day, He says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of My Father, the one who does the will of My Father, put down the shelf for a second. On that day, many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? make all kinds of sacrifices and do all kinds of things that look religious in your name, even successful things? Yes, you did. Verse 23, And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What is the will of the Father then, right? If the, those who do the will of the Father are the ones that get in, the ones that get to enjoy God in all His glory, i got to know what that is. And our minds again want to go, well, this is the will. Don't lie. Don't do this. Don't do this. Jesus told us so clearly what the will of the Father is. He spoke to us in John 6. And this was after the time when He fed the 5,000. Maybe you're familiar with that story few loaves and some fish, and he fed 5,000 people, and everyone was satisfied. And then he disappeared. And he had told his disciples to get in the boat and go. And then Jesus, halfway through the night, walked on water and met them, right? And when morning came, people were like, where did Jesus go? We saw his disciples leave. We I think he's on the other side of the water. Running over there, right? 5,000 people all coming to find Jesus. And Jesus has some pretty direct words for them when they find him. And he says, there's a real reason why he chased me down. They didn't want Jesus. Like good old prosperity preachers, they wanted more bread. And it says in John 6, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs to evidence who I am. But because you ate your fill of the loaves, you got full stomachs. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. And they said to Him, Okay, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What is the will of God? We'll do it. Just tell us. And He says this. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The will of the Father is to believe in Jesus Christ. It is not to just admire Jesus as a great teacher or appreciate Jesus who showed all kinds of humility and how to serve people. It is to trust Jesus as your Savior. To see Him on that cross dying the death that you deserved. Shedding His blood to cleanse you from that and rising from the dead to give you new life and showing that He's not only Savior but Lord. 
He calls the shots in your life. You care what He thinks because He cares for you. So depending on what you confess and what you believe about Jesus Christ, that day of coming will either be a day of burning or healing. It says, For behold, the day is coming, God's words, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that I will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out leaping like calves from the stall. There will be a day of judgment when sin and evil are conquered. And I want you to hear me fully as we go through this. And not stop short and let that veil drop over your own heart. Like much of the Old Testament, when a prophecy is declared, there is often fulfillment that occurs progressively. And the judgment of sin and evil is centrally, this prophecy is centrally fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. His death and resurrection. On the cross, God unleashed His wrath and just judgment on His Son for our sins. And through faith in that truth, in that historical reality, in His sacrifice for me, my guilt, my shame, and the power of sin is removed. This is why Paul can write in Colossians 2, you who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal commands. This He set aside, nailing to the cross, and He disarmed who? The rulers and the authorities, sin, Satan, death, put them to open shame, triumphing, triumphing over them in Him. Victory. Judgment. And at the moment of his death, Jesus can declare, it is finished. Not only because sin is now a powerless, defeated enemy, but because its final annihilation is certain. Sin hasn't been completely annihilated. How do I know that? I'm going to die, and so are you. We still see sin and the brokenness. It is powerless. It is defeated. I am freed from slavery. And yet, it's still there. The annihilation, though, is certain. And this is God's response to those who do not fear Him declare, you know, it really doesn't matter. And He says, no, it does matter, particularly what you confess. Not just what you say. What you confess. On the day of Jesus' second coming, sin, evil, and the wicked will be completely destroyed. And perhaps you have heard, because it is often quoted, the cliche, God hates sin but loves the sinner. Hear me out. As a description of how we should relate to people, you know what, that's a fantastic guy. 
because we ought not become prideful in our sin and look down on the brokenness of others. We should realize our own brokenness is way more worse than them. The brokenness and the grace that we have received, despite that, should cause us to engage with the world very differently, not in a condemning way, but in a hopeful and proclaiming way about where salvation is found. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Great way to kind of function relationally. But as a biblical description of how our holy God relates to us, it's woefully inadequate. This passage declares that the day is coming when God will not only destroy evil, but what it says is that He will destroy the arrogant evildoer. We have to sit on that. You can't just skip over that because it feels good to say, oh, He just loves. He's love. I think it's fair to say, you can use not love, if that makes you feel better, that God hates sinners as much as He hates sin. Whenever God's hatred is expressed in Scripture, it is. It's very rarely, if ever, disconnected from the person. Proverbs 6, he says, goes on, There are six things the Lord hates, even seven that are abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. God says He hates these things. He hates the eyes of the sinner, the tongue of the sinner, the hands of the sinner, the heart of the sinner, the feet of the sinner, the false witness of the sinner, and the lying sinner himself. And I realize it's difficult to hear that because you're like, well, I want it to be different because that just feels yucky. I'm not saying it's the first thing you go preach to your neighbor. For the sinner and not just sin, the fire of God's judgment will be devastating. It's going to be devastating. And by that I mean... God says, God says it's going to be like a fire furnace. The fire of God's furnace will be consuming, all-consuming. What does that mean? It means that right now we experience some consequences for our sin. We all do. We make decisions, dumb decisions, sinful decisions, and we end up having sorrowful, painful consequences as a result. But know that that is only partial. God is gracious to us to not experience the full weight and power of our sinful decisions. But on that day, they will be fully realized. Fully realized. And the fire of God's furnace will also be comprehensive. In other words, this isn't just a bunch of spankings. This is not just external punishment. There is an internal judgment that will occur. Something felt at a heart level where you are completely separated from all that is good, which is God. And on that day, the fire of God's furnace will also be complete. In other words, it will not be partial. It will be final, complete, and there will be no second chances for stubble. That's the day of God's judgment for those who do not fear Him. It is going to be a day of burning, but that's not the end of the good news. That is what makes the news so good. 
for those who fear the Lord, it is going to be a day of healing. Day of burning for the sinner and a day of healing for his sinful children. Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean sinful children? thought you just made a distinction between the wicked and the righteous. Like the good team and the bad team. I'm on the good team, right? The Bible teaches this. God hates sin. The Bible teaches that God hates the sinner. And the Bible teaches that God loves the sinner. Those whom God saves are no less sinful than those He does not. Let's be clear about that. This story and this salvation is about God, not about us. Our sins cannot be separated from us, and that's a good thing because that means that Jesus didn't just die for my sins, He died for me, in my place, to save me and rescue me and His people whom He has chosen as His treasured possession. And that day upon the return of our King is going to be awesome. We will not experience, for those who are in Christ, those who fear the Lord, it will not be a burning furnace. God's fire, He says, will be like a healing sun. Imagine, if you will, the individual who sits in darkness their whole life and doesn't see the light of day. The plant that never sees the sunshine and the way it wilts, or the way the skin kind of becomes pale. And to be exposed to the sun, the healing, warm sun of God in a way that is perfect and restorative. For those who are in Christ, the heat of God's sun, it's not going to be a consuming fire, but it will be a consuming sun. It will warm every cold, broken, imperfect part of us. It will bring all of those wounds and bring healing to them. Begin to restore every emotional wound you have, every physical wound you have, every spiritual wound you have. It will heal and warm every part of you. And this is not just external. The heat of the sun will be comprehensive. It won't just heal our bodies, but it will heal our souls in the deepest of ways that can only be experienced from the Son of God. And the heat of God's sun will be complete. In other words, it will never have end. It will never be a time where you go back to brokenness, where you go back to deficiency, where you experience suffering or pain or, or lack in any way. It will be complete and the sun will begin to shine through us and we will forever display God's healing power and glory. We will experience perfect joy. He says, so much that it will be like a young calf who is stuck in the stall, restrained and then released to freedom, released from the brokenness of our bodies, the brokenness of our families, the brokenness of our jobs, of this world, free to run and enjoy and become everything God wants us to be, fully, purely restored human. It will be a glorious day. It will be an awesome day. And as we close, we see that there's this last verse in here that can very easily cause you to go the wrong way with it. Verse 3 says, And you shall tread upon the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet 
on the day when I act, says the Lord. Do not make the mistake of reading this and focusing on the actions of the righteous against the wicked. Rather, see the result of what happens on the day God acts. This is not some perverse death dance on the graves of the wicked where you feel like, Woo! We beat you! There is no contest to win. This is not the great divine I told you so dance. On the contrary, this is a picture, an image, a prophetic image of what final, total, and complete victory over evil looks like. What true freedom, you can truly see that calf that's springing out. If you've never seen one, you should go to YouTube it because it's hilariously, wonderfully joyful. You can't help but, but smile as you see this calf who's been restrained in life and it's God, it runs and goes. That will be us. And we will not look back and go, I'm glad I made it better than that guy. We'll be so joyful experiencing the victory they have in God and the healing we have in God. We will never go there with our minds. So let me just end with this. This is our seven-year anniversary. And I could die walking down the stairs on the way out. And our church, in my own person, if I could be remembered for anything, it would be remembered for what I'm about to say. The same God who can take a wicked man's life and one day make it all ash is the same one who wants and promises to take whatever the wicked ashes of your life are right now and make them beautiful. Jesus does judge, but Jesus saves. And Jesus does crush one day, but right now He heals. And so I I plead with you, as perhaps my last words, I plead with you to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and be saved and be restored to your Father so that when Jesus does return, and I pray it's today, when He does return, you will not shrink in shame His coming, but you will rejoice like that calf kicking your feet up going, I am free! Finally free of all this brokenness. The brokenness of my body. The brokenness of my past. The brokenness of my relationships. Those things that just won't stop plaguing me. It's done. I'll read out of 1 John whose desire I think was the same. 1 John 2 says this, And now little children... Abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. Now, 
And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in that coming of the one and true Savior, Jesus Christ, hopes in Him, purifies Himself as He is pure. Hope in Jesus. Hope in Jesus. And trust yourself to Jesus. I pray you'll do that today. We're going to sing songs to our Savior. We're going to take communion and preach the Gospel again, reminding ourselves that we look forward to Jesus coming and let us pray for that constantly.